Welcome to Critical Issues Commentary, the podcast ministry of Gospel of Grace Fellowship, a non-denominational Christian church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. This is Jessica Kramis, your host for today, and I'm speaking with Bob DeWay, Gospel of Grace's teacher and theologian and author of Critical Issues Commentary. In this series, we are discussing Dutch Sheets' book, Intercessory Prayer, and we are discussing his chapter on supernatural childbirth. Now, on starting on page 134, he lists several passages of scripture that he claims describes this travail or birthing prayer. And now, if you missed last week, birthing prayer is kind of his NAR way of teaching that our prayers can birth supernatural things. Can Our prayers can actually bring about, as he calls it, supernatural childbirth. So this week we are going to walk through, especially Isaiah 66, 7 and 8, and if there's time, a few other passages, because we need to determine if these passages are actually teaching what he claims they are teaching. We're going to focus on this Isaiah 66, 7 and 8, because that's really the most glaring issue. And it's one that he mentions a couple times in the chapter. Do you want to read this Isaiah 66, 7 and 8 for us? Yeah, I'll quote it right out of his book. Okay. Isaiah 66, 7 and 8. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Okay. And that's one of the texts, amongst others, that he used to uh, say that this travailing prayer is what's going to give birth to a miraculous outcome or a salvation or other things like that. Right. So what he says leading into this couple of pages of scriptures that he lists is, can we demystify the subject of travail? I believe we can. The following passages either directly mention travailing, birthing, prayer, or the context and wording of it implies it. Okay. Does the context and wording of Isaiah 66, 7 through 8 imply a birthing prayer? that brings forth the supernatural. Not in the context that he's claiming. Right. Because he's applying this to whatever the outcome is, depending on the person and what they wanted, usually someone's salvation or something else they want to have birthed. Right. Now, at the very least, start with what the original text meant in context when given by Isaiah, and you might be able to make an application, or maybe it doesn't really work at all, in this case it doesn't. But what's the point? What's the point of Isaiah 66, 7 through 9? Okay. So he's claiming it is this travailing or birthing prayer. But even just the plain reading, before she travailed, she brought forth. Yeah. Before her pain came, she gave birth. Right. So How can that birth... possibly be proving birthing prayer? No, it's not the the birth process involves pains. Yes. Now, in this case, 
the point is a promise of God given to, to Israel. All right. Okay. And uh, there's some metaphors here to help make the point. But the the day of bringing forth the national um, hope of the covenant promises given to the patriarchs is something God will do supernaturally. Okay. And it will happen in a day. Right. Can a land be born in one day? Exactly. Verse 8. So uh, we both went and looked up some commentaries on this, and I think it has to do personally, I think it has to do with the return of Christ. Yes. The establishment of the millennial kingdom. Okay. So I don't know that the different commentators you may get may hold a different eschatology. Right. I believe that it happens when God returns in Christ suddenly and unexpectedly. Right. So God does it. There's an allusion in Genesis 3.16. Let me cite Dr. Oswald from the International Commentary of the Old Testament. Okay. The point is surely to promise that the day will arrive when joy and blessing, says Oswald, will come to those in God's new Jerusalem without pain or even effort. He says one of the givens of life as we know it is that human birth entails both terrific effort and terrible pain for the mother. But it is not so in the world that Isaiah foresees. And then he goes on, talks about there's an allusion to Genesis 3.16. Pain in childbirth is a concomitant. Let me use that as a word you see in theological discussion and philosophical. Concomitant means it goes along with it by necessity. Okay. It's part and parcel, maybe we could say. Yeah. The pain of childbirth is concomitant of the fall. That goes back to Genesis 3.16. Isaiah is looking to a world where the effects of the fall have been done away with, and the and its dead hand could no more reach out to blight even the moment of new life's breaking into the world. Very good way with words. In other words, because of the fall... Genesis 3, 16, there's pain in childbirth. Right. Okay. So to bring forth this new promise, this promise that's old, but it comes to fruition as new in the future, God's going to do something to bring forth the promises he made to the patriarchs and Israel be restored in a day and not just to a fallen state, but as the new Jerusalem. So, and then I have the Alec Machir commentary on Isaiah. And for verse seven, he says, painless birth, and in parentheses, Genesis 3.16, is a symbol of Eden restored and the curse removed. The picture is of motherhood without labor. Right. So the travail goes back to the fall, Genesis 3.16. Right. Okay. The change comes at the end. Yes. Okay. And then uh, Dr. Oswald says, the day will come when Christ, Isaiah's servant Messiah, and we know Christ is the one referenced in Isaiah because Jesus Christ, when he came into Nazareth, his hometown, and took the scroll 
and read it at the beginning of his public ministry in Luke 4, read from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Okay. And he said, today these things are fulfilled in your hearing. Yes. And that had to do with the salvation, the release from sins that comes at the first advent through Christ. Okay. He left out the coming wrath part of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, because that's yet future. Right. But even the part he cited in his own hometown synagogue, Nazareth, as he explicated it and made his claim to be the true Messiah, they rejected him, wanted to throw him off a cliff. Right. Okay. But here, he's looking forward to the second advent. The day will come when Christ, Isaiah's servant Messiah, will break through the skies, says Oswald. In a single moment, Zion will give birth to a brand new people, a people forever set free from the curse of sin. Amen. Even now as redeemed, we still have the effects of the fall, aging, pain in childbirth, and so on. Okay. So this passage is about the future. Right. The promise of being free from the curse when Christ returns. Yes. Now, some may say, well, see, you're going to commentaries and stuff, so what's wrong with duck sheets? Well, here's the difference. We're looking to determine the author's meaning. Right. Isaiah's. By looking at objective evidence that this was what, what Isaiah was talking about. Okay. There's good evidence for it. Yes. There's other passages in Isaiah that are amazing, that are about the church age, the fact that his salvation will go to the ends of the earth, messianic prophecy, the suffering servant, and it's it's in Isaiah. So this Isaiah was a real prophet, not one of these latter-day ones who keep getting things wrong. Okay. All right. Now, the author determines the meaning, not the reader. So that's how that applies. Now, if you take how it's used in this book, An Incessory Prayer, you have a totally different idea. Right. Because this comes after this story of how someone grabbed a hold of this travailing and has visions and revelations and these things are happening and this problem is resolved. And if what's being fulfilled is Isaiah 66, 7 through 9, then why is there still pain in childbirth? Right. The, his interpretation of this passage is so opposite of exactly what it says. Really, you don't need commentaries to see that this is just wrong. Well, that's true. And it's pretty amazing. Now, in my experience, of this, the book we're critiquing was written in 96. We started Critical Issues Commentary in 92 to help people see that the passages that have been taught to them are usually taken out of context. Yes. And so I started expounding in writing some of the things that people heard. Issue one, which was in 1992, was on binding and loosing. Okay. And in that article, still on our website, look for issue one, binding and loosing part one, they were binding Satan so they could get a better outcome. Right. But binding means 
that you're obligated to keep a certain aspect of the law. It was Jewish terminology. You're bound, in other words, to not work on Shabbat. And okay. here's how they did their binding. If you carry so much weight for so far, then you are sinning against God by breaking Sabbath. Okay. But if you stay within a certain confines, you're loosed. You can do that. So yeah. it's forbidding and permitting. So again and again, these terminologies, they take out of context, misuse them, apply it to someone, something else, like binding Satan. And when they get all done, and we know that that comes up in this book too, the binding Satan stuff. Yes. It gives them the power to control the outcome. Right. And so it, this book does quite often talk about binding Satan, but but there's another part of that too, where he talks quite a bit about releasing the Holy Spirit, as if the Holy Spirit is bound and he needs us to come release him. And yes, that comes up it. over and over in this chapter. Why? God help us. God yeah. help the poor saints who hear these teachings. Right. Who is it that promised to pour out the Spirit of God on all flesh? Joel 2.28. It's God, and it's predicted in the Luke, and it happens in Acts. Yes. And having come to that day, Pentecost and onward, during the church age, every believer, every believer has access to the throne of grace. Every believer has the authority to proclaim the terms of redemption and salvation. Yes. The binding and loosing has been done by Christ and his apostles. We have the authority to declare the terms. Okay. Because they don't change. Right. So how do you do that? By preaching the gospel. Yes. Okay. So if you want people loosed, from bondage to Satan, the only way to get out of that state, because it's part of the fall, is to come to Christ. Okay. Proclaim release to captives. Right. Isaiah 61, cited in Luke 4.18. But this is totally different. This is, we have to travail and somehow release the spirit to do what he wants to do, but he can't until we release him. Just to quote just one sample of this, that phrase is really all throughout this chapter, but page 131, we do not generate life, but we release through prayer him who does. Well, him who does is the Holy Spirit, but okay. he doesn't need us to release him. Well, what well, we need to do is preach the gospel. Oh, man, that is amazing. That's amazing. Um. That citation you just used there. Yeah. Last week, I hope people heard last week's episode. I cited John 3 8 about that. Right. It's just the opposite. Yeah. We don't release the Spirit. The Holy Spirit works as He sees fit, and people are born of God, and we can't control it. Right. We don't cause it, we can't control it. Yep. God does it. What we can do is preach the gospel and declare the will of God that all men everywhere repent. 
Yes. Meaning all persons. Here he says, there's an aspect of prayer that births things in the spirit. We are birthers for God. Right. We are the womb of God on the earth. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what? <laughs> what would happen to people who believe this? And they still have problems in their lives. And they have unsaved children or loved ones. Right. And they're as sincere as they can be. And they pray and and fast. And they really do want God to be merciful to sinners, which is yeah. to, to want. And they've preached the gospel. They've shared the truth of the gospel. And the person is bound to go do what they want to do in their own wicked way. Do we, do you really think that the saints mean need more guilt by telling them using obscure language about things that the Bible doesn't say to make us responsible for what only God can do? Right. What's going That's to not helpful to those, to those dear saints? Yes. Going to end up with hopelessness and fear and guilt. Okay. And I don't suggest that the people teaching this intended that outcome. Only God knows the heart, and I don't want to pass judgment before the time. But I promise you that I have talked to dozens of people who ended up in that outcome. Okay. Who think they failed God. Yes. Or full of fear and guilt because they were under this teaching for decades. And even after they got out of it, they had a hard time shedding the effects of it. Right. Okay. And it, it's, it's a heartbreaker. Okay. We're saying that this is false teaching, that God himself, God the Holy Spirit, is the one who brings about the new birth. Yes. And the means he uses isn't somebody travailing to give birth and being the womb of God. It's the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. God has chosen, and the word foolish in this citation is used ironically, God has chosen to use the foolishness of the gospel preached to save those who will believe. Yes. As I preached on that within the last year or two uh, since I've been in 1 Corinthians. Because the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. And so Paul takes up that idea and said, yeah, well, this is the foolishness he uses, Christ crucified. Okay. So if someone is not uh, coming to God through the gospel, believing in Christ— that only Jesus Christ, uh, substitutionary death for sins, is efficacious to save them, and they don't listen to the witness of Christians, and they plug their ears and go do it their own way, God can still intervene. Right. But claiming that we can control the process by learning the secret of travailing in prayer and being the birthers, is patently false. 
Yes. It's not biblical. It's okay. not the application of Scripture. It's not a valid application of Scripture. And it will give people who don't, uh, shouldn't have it because they love the Lord Jesus Christ, it will give them guilt. It will give them fear. These stories that he shares in here are a few cases where evidently there was a good outcome. It is, could very well be that someone comes to Christ despite all of this. <laughs> right. We are going to talk about this story next week, but I wrote in the margin here. So what, what Dutch Sheets had said at one point in this story was, does God answer prayer? You bet he does. And I wrote in the margin, sometimes he does in spite of our nonsense, not because of it. Yeah. Well, why not preach the gospel? And the same things happen to everybody. Yeah. Who doesn't know a relative who has a rebellious child or teenager or young person who runs off angry and won't serve God is living in sin? Right. So that all... we think that if we just had visions of angels and got new revelations and got the revelation of through travail and became the womb. Yeah. By which people birth that somehow see the assumption is that because they went to church at some point, they know the gospel anyhow. And that comes right out in this story. This uh, this is going to be a very interesting episode next week. But one thing I like to point out to parents, because we, for the most part, all we all go through that. We all have some family member that has struggled with that. But if we just look at the scope of Scripture, go back to go back to Genesis. Okay, Adam and Eve were parents who had one son who killed their other son. Right. Okay. We have David and Absalom. Did David not travail enough in prayer that his son would not seek to kill him? We, the sons of Eli, we Nadab and Abihu. We can go all through Scripture and see that all parents don't necessarily have believing children, and parents have children that rebel. And we go through tough things, and it hurts, and it, we our hearts are broken for them. But nowhere in any of these situations where parents are dealing with these things with their children do we see this travailing prayer that brings about something. It's not there. Very good reading, Jessica. Okay. That's a good reading. Yeah. Exactly right. And Ezekiel addresses it. Okay. Um, trying to remember what there's a chapter in Ezekiel, and I wasn't planning on bringing that up, but remember there's a wicked father or son who goes after other gods and does all this wickedness and has a son who sees everything his father's doing and says, no, that's not right. And he's going to turn to God. Okay. He'll, he'll live. But if that righteous person, the father has a son who's wicked and runs off, he'll, he'll die for his own rebellion and wickedness. That's in Ezekiel. I think it's chapter 33. Okay. I may not be right about the chapter. I hadn't thought about it for a long time. Yeah. I know it's in there. That, and uh, there was a solution when it came to Cain, Cain and Abel. Okay. And Yahweh was on the scene, objectively speaking. Right. Okay. What was the solution? Well, you need you need to go get the right sacrifice. Right. Which was a blood atonement. Yes. And... He didn't want to do it. 
Yep. And it didn't come back to Adam and Eve to fix the situation. Well, why didn't you do the birthing prayer? Right. Uh, honestly, it's just sad. It's frankly sad. I would think after decades, I was in the movement in the 70s, and this is the sort of thing we heard regularly. Okay. And if somebody came through with something like this, it was very, very exciting. People go to the seminar and they couldn't wait to hear more. Because we really do like to control the outcome. Yeah. Same with the word of faith, with the healing. Okay. But God's in charge of his own universe. Right. And at the base of all this, really at the base of it, is a rejection of the sovereignty of God, rejection of the doctrine of election, rejection that God uses his means by his power to save those who will believe. And okay. really want to get back to a, a guardrail against this sort of deception. You have to go to the five solas. All right. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Yes. This material in this book is the opposite. Right. It's not Scripture alone. It's not Christ alone. It's not grace alone. It's not faith alone. And it's certainly not to the glory of God alone. It's synergism from beginning to end. Us plus God. Us plus God. God needs us. We need to get a revelation. We need to say these things. We need to tell the angels what to do. We need to make the decrees. We need to be birthers. We need to travail and do our part and we need to release the Spirit because somehow God didn't do that as he said he did when he poured out the Holy Spirit of flesh in Pentecost, according to Joel 2, 28. Why are people believing these things? It, it's absurd. <laughs> it's not even plausible. Well, and I think it really appeals to human pride we like to be in control of things. We like to think that we can get the outcome we want. We like to think, I think especially Americans, we all think we ought to be able to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get things done. And it's humbling to just trust God and rely on his means and trust in his sovereignty. It, it We have to swallow our pride a bit to do that. Well, there's plenty of things in life that are sitting there waiting to humble us. Right. We still live in a fallen world. Yes. As we were talking before we started this recording, in the end, once you get away from the authority of Scripture and that the Holy Spirit-inspired author determines the meaning of inerrant Scripture, and it's already there, it's not going to change, hyper-liberalism and this sort of dominion theology type conservatism, if you want to call it that, are making the same error. Yes. And that is denying that we live in a fallen world. Right. Okay. So the liberals say everything's normal. Okay. We're going to reimagine and redefine. In fact, when I was reading this, I thought of this term, co-recreators with God. Yes, that you have that in your emergent. emergent book. Yeah, I wrote about that in Emergent when I re wrote to refute that thing. But when you look at the 
intercessory prayer and the extra revelations and the ability to create the outcome you want by working with God. It's almost as if emergent co-recreators with God and NAR recreating something glorious on earth, some glorious church even greater than what was there at the time of the apostles, better miracles than Jesus, whatever the claim, they're making the same error. Okay. They're neglecting to see just how perverse the effects of the fall is on the human race. Yes. And it's so significant, so pernicious, and so ubiquitous, the whole creation groans and travails, as we saw, that only a miracle of God's grace through his promises, his Messiah, his ordained means, will cause anyone to be delivered out of that darkness. Right. And to be willing to accept what God said. Yes. And to believe the truth. And if we want that outcome, then we preach the truth. We teach the word of God. We don't listen to these sort of things and come up with these fantastic stories that are almost impossible to verify or, you know, prove wrong that somebody says they had the story. I guess they had the story. Yeah. God told them an angel was in the car with the kid. Well, whatever. Yep. Doesn't cost anything to say that. Maybe yeah. we don't know. We're not in charge of the angels. Okay. So if we do believe that we live in a fallen world, but there's redemption, atonement, forgiveness of sins, hope of eternal life, future resurrection, then the fact that there's wickedness around us isn't shocking. Right. We think we can control it. We'll just beat ourselves up and end up tormented needlessly. And we need to have hope and comfort, not torment. Dear saints, don't allow these false teachings to torment you. Yes. Trust God and his promises. He loves you. He cares for you. And these processes aren't valid. You'll never be able to master them. And if you think you can control the outcome for everything around you, we can't do that. Only God, who loves us and cares for us, can keep us and give us comfort even when we do see loved ones who run off in rebellion, some of whom die in that state. Right. All right. We are out of time for this edition of Critical Issues Commentary Radio. You can access this episode and many others, as well as years worth of articles, at the website cicministry.org. While you're there, click on contact and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. We want to encourage you all to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, and strive together for the faith of the gospel. For Critical Issues Commentary, this is Jessica Kramus. Bob DeWay. We'll see you next week.